Look, you know, I came here to talk about a thing. Uh, it was the name of the lecture and everything. So, but given the subject matter, you know as well as I do that we can't just jump right into this stuff. That you can't jump right into the deep water. You know, you have to wade your way out slowly. I know some of you guys already, but if we've yet to meet, here's at least one thing about me. Before I found my way to you guys this evening, once upon a time, actually years ago now, I was a, an itinerant musician, like some of you guys, I'm sure. Musicians of the uh, touring variety tend to carry around a lot of weird, unrelatable stories. But maybe you can relate to this one. Let's find out. Uh, if you're anything like me, then maybe you know about the occasional head injury. Maybe, like me, you have pressed a towel to your bleeding forehead in the darkened backseat of a 15-passenger van. The sky beyond your window, you know, star-speckled canopy of velvety blue-black, so beautiful, the scenery. And maybe, like me, you couldn't keep the pressure properly applied either because you're bouncing around on the bench seat as your van capers over the craggy, pockmarked asphalt of another Corn Belt Highway somewhere in America's rural Midwest, I think. See, you, you spend months on the road at a time, the days and weeks blur together. Where were we, Illinois or Indiana? Aren't there cornfields in Iowa, I think? And the headache probably wasn't helping. I had somehow struck myself on the forehead with a microphone during the particular evening's performance. You don't plan injuries like these, they just sort of happen. The show, uh, you show up to another local dive, you unload all sorts of uh, guitars and drums and amplifiers, a mess of wires and glowing tubes and circuit boards, and you wait around all afternoon and evening, you play music for a little while, and then you pack it all up and you head to the next city. But, if you're anything like me, maybe you're also consistently low on cash because you survive on the sum total of $5 a day. No more, no less. So maybe when your salary is a $5 per diem, you get creative, you learn things. You know, cheap pasta is a dollar a box. You can buy a can of off-brand marinara, the kind in big aluminum cans for 89 cents, at least you could back then. And you can sustain yourself for weeks on peanut butter sandwiches for mere nickels and dimes. And when surviving, on $5 a day, $35 a week, for about four to six weeks straight at a time, you also learn to bypass hotels. Hotels are expensive. I don't know if you've heard about these things. And then also, someone will usually let you sleep on their floor if you ask nicely. And you keep at it long enough, you also learn a few things about sleeping on floors, like avoiding crowded uh, roommate overloaded bachelor pads where food and space are likely in short supply, or these kind of big boarding houses rented by a dozen energetic 20-somethings. Those are a last resort. And they might have video games and good attitudes, but the place will probably be a mess. It'll probably smell bad, especially if the 20-somethings are all guys. And the 20-somethings will want to stay up all night, and you have to go to Iowa or Nebraska or wherever the heck you're going tomorrow. So when you're panhandling for a free floor on which to sleep, you learn to prioritize the suburban family home. You look, <laughs> you look for the cool parents, quotation marks, who brought, brought their kids and their kids' friends to the show, you know, the out-of-place-looking 40-somethings in band t-shirts, what I've become. Um, <laughs> The suburban family home is clean, and there's food there. The suburban family home has clean sheets, a spare room or two, air conditioning. The suburban family home has paid its cable bill. 
So when the excited 20-somethings tell you about their very cool apartment and PlayStation 2, that's the era we're talking about, you say, oh man, thank you so much. Let me ask the others. I'm not sure what our plans are just yet. And you keep looking for the suburban family home. You keep them around as like an audible. So on this particular night, the one with the head injury, it was the suburban family home to which we were en route as I watched, you know, the wallpaper of endless cornfields spool out in either direction of the fan's window, holding a towel against my forehead to stop the bleeding. Now, when we arrived, the family led us up to the steps of the night's accommodations, and we went, you know, galumphing in, more than a half dozen people at this point, sweat-streaked and stinking, as another mom and dad offered a smiling tour of the guest room, saying things like, help yourself to whatever's in the fridge, and you make with the pleasantries, you you respectfully decline in the moment. Oh, no, thank you. you, you're too kind, we couldn't, because really, you want to be left alone with the cabin to shamelessly pillage, the, the, you know, look for cereal and potato chips and fruit roll-ups, that kind of thing. But on this particular night, this is a real story, I stepped into the family room and stopped. There, in the corner, across from the couch, stood a giant golden harp. It must have been six feet tall, this thing, a great golden column attached to a sliding arch fixed with these gossamer strings that caught the light, all fancy, enormous and imposing and alien, maybe the only real life harp I have ever seen. So I asked, what's with the harp? And the parents, they suddenly beam, some secret knowledge passes between them and they summon their teenage daughter into the room. She plays, they say, barely able to contain their pride. Would you like to hear it? And I said that I would, assuming that the young lady might protest, but she smiles and she nods and she moves with confidence to the instrument. She lifts her hands and with a series of deft, elegant movements, music issues forth from the harp and it fills the suburban family home, beautiful, otherworldly music. And I sat there listening, pressing a fresh square of gauze against my forehead. And then my bandmates and travel companions, one by one, they stumble into the living room and become similarly transfixed, a troop of wide-eyed ragamuffins. And it wasn't like uh, the musicianship. We were all musicians. And it wasn't even the giftedness per se. Some of our friends were very gifted musicians. Would, would you even recognize a harp prodigy if you heard one? I, it, was, it was what all of us knew must have been the kind of lonely dedication necessary to actually get good at playing the harp. Who plays the harp? And, and many years after that night, I was haunted by the sound of that harp without remembering its song. I don't remember that home exactly, kind of vague images of it. I don't remember the face of the young lady who played it, but I remember the practice precision with which she took to one string and then another commanding melody from this ancient looking golden monolith. There was truth in the harp waiting to be summoned with only the flesh and bone of a player's fingers. Any player who knew how to do it. But the harp would not yield mastery at the behest of my simple inelegant want, meaning I had dedicated no blood, no sweat, no tears to such knowledge, and so I had none. I could probably sit down, I'm assuming, and pick at the strings, and maybe I could even find like a, an innocent childlike melody, you know, some row, row, row your boat stuff from the harp in the curious apparatus of the whole thing, but I could not wield the instrument in such a way as to pour from it transfixing ethereal song that would spill down over my lap and flood the living room of my suburban family home, traveling up the walls and cresting and colliding like a chorus of angels harmonizing their approval of great 
glorious dedication and discipline. If you want to play the harp, you have got to stick with it, even and especially when the journey gets tough and when you feel lonely and when you start to wonder if it's worth it at all. Now, again, if we haven't met, I am Josh Porter. I used to work here before they sent me down the road, like Tyler was saying, to plant a church called Van City. And I was going to ask, I have it here in my notes, to ask if any Van City people are here this evening, but I see a bunch of them right here. Hooray. Oh, wow. And wow, Luke, with the tie and everything. Is that for me? (laughs) Oh, dang. (laughs) Dang. All right, well, we'll come back to it. I'm here to talk about uh, deconstruction, which I know from the outset is a divisive word a trigger word or whatever it is that we're saying these days. And that's tough for me as your guest this evening because they didn't bring me in to talk about like Jesus blessing the children or some such. There's this divisive stuff. In fact, at one point near the end here, I'm going to string together the words affluent white millennial, not once, but twice. So brace yourself for that. But then on top of all that, there's what I'm told is the uh, often dry, sarcastic way I talk. And while I say it's charming, others disagree and I'm lying. So (laughs) the truth is a lot of ink has already been spilled over the whole concept of deconstruction, the phenomenon of deconstruction, alarmism over deconstruction, genuine, sincere concerns. I've been having conversations and debates about it for years now. As, yeah, like a pastor and an author, sure, but also just as another dude trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. There's so much emotional, emotional and like social media angst hopelessly entangling the deconstruction conversation that it has become nigh impossible to navigate without activating defenses or reducing complicated people and stories to caricatures, which is bad news for those of us sincerely wanting to figure out how we confront the ongoing reality of questions and doubt and learning new things, unlearning old things, and how we're supposed to process the phenomenon of people that we know and love leaving the faith and how we navigate things like church hurt and hypocrisy. Now, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not even an expert on deconstruction. If you flip through this book that I wrote, you'll see it's more my story than it is uh, a uh, a theological textbook. I would never presume to have all the answers to questions about deconstruction. And even if I did, I doubt we could get to many of them tonight, let alone all of them. So instead, we're gonna keep things simple and to the point, here is my decidedly narrow map for the evening. First, what is deconstruction? How should we talk about it? What causes deconstruction? And finally, how do you walk with someone, including yourself, through deconstruction? You guys all right? You with me so far? Great, thank you so much. So let's start here. What is Deconstruction. Now, I wrote a book called Death to Deconstruction. I chose that name personally, and I battled my publisher, who rightly worried that the name would be misunderstood. Uh, Of course, it will be misunderstood, I told them, and won't that be an interesting dimension to whatever conversation or enthusiasm or outrage the book manages to stir up, if it stirs up anything at all? You don't call your book Death to Deconstruction oblivious to the inevitable backlash. It started earlier. Uh, before the book was actually published and it followed me around on the, you know, the internet and throughout the whole promotional cycle that even nobody authors like me are made to complete in the world of publishing. Why, oh why, I have been asked so many times, did you call your book that? So strongly worded is the title that it seems to leave no room for good deconstruction, for honest, sincere deconstruction, for necessary deconstruction. After all, 
I was asked, almost immediately, and then again and again and again, can't deconstruction be a good thing? Well, it depends. This may be a semantic escape hatch on my part, but in the book, I define deconstruction with Webster, so it's not just me, as the act of analyzing a text or a linguistic or conceptual system by deconstructing it, typically in order to expose its hidden internal assumptions and contradictions and subvert its apparent significance or unity. Or, definition two, still Webster, to reduce something to its constituent parts in order to reinterpret it. That is, I think, accurate. But more specifically, in the sort of uh, spiritual pop culture conversation, deconstruction has become an umbrella term that describes a process by which someone who was once a Christian embarks on a quest to jettison parts or all of their Christianity. And if you Google the term and rifle through like social media posts or articles in you know, uh, magazines like Relevant or Christianity Today or even books published over the last 10 years, that's what the term usually means. And it's a good or bad thing depending on who you ask. But whether you're asking someone with an obvious ax to grind against deconstruction or a proudly deconstructed post-Christian, post-church podcaster, still, no one agrees on the specifics. Deconstruction has uh, sort of fallen to the social media oppression Olympics. It's a way of thinking in which individuals claim ownership of certain genres of pain and suffering, and then they assume the mantle of arbiter over who is qualified and permitted to claim the same kind of pain. Who had the worst experience, suffered the most spiritual abuse, et cetera, et cetera. If my story is worse than yours, then I get to decide what you can or can't say about it. So early on, a certain like vocal corner of the internet came after me insisting on proof that I had actually suffered legitimate church hurt. And for, and this is a quote, a timeline of my deconstruction in order to verify its validity. Prove to us, in other words, that you really deconstructed. Members of this same angry rabble who questioned whether I'd actually ever experienced deconstruction also questioned whether or not I had experienced uh, the pain and despair I describe in the book, or if I had manufactured those stories in order to lure naive, would-be deconstructionists back to religious fundamentalism. Whoa. <laughs> Apparently, deconstruction isn't always deconstruction. If I had sincerely navigated deconstruction, I have been told, then I wouldn't be a Christian anymore. At least not this type of Christian, the kind that goes to church and accepts the Bible as authoritative, a believer and defender of what we call orthodoxy. Others disagree. For them, deconstruction is more of an out with the bad, in with the good approach to theology and biblical interpretation, things like that. It's about deconstructing faulty understandings and interpretations. My point in all that is that sometimes I think we lose words or, or at least nuance to evolving cultural usage and sensibilities. Terrific now means good rather than terrifying. Literal means figurative, apparently. <laughs> Evangelical is a political classification. The word sovereign now belongs to the Calvinists. These words have gone to other people. And deconstruction has taken a certain shape in the spiritual pop culture dialogue, for better or for worse. Deconstruction has come to mean what it sounds like it means, to dismantle and undo a faith once held. But whether or not this is good or bad, necessary or disastrous depends on who you ask. I was raised 
in a conservative fundamentalist Southern Baptist environment in the Deep South during the 80s and 90s, should I not have deconstructed my upbringing? I know as well as anyone that for a certain demographic anyway, untangling a flawed religious upbringing is the perfect occasion for social media heroism to broadcast one's big, brave story of surviving the big, bad church. And no one wants their bold, beautiful bravery called into question by someone's arrogant little book title or, or allowing the term most precious to their story hauled into the unforgiving light of reinterpretation. Why are you saying it that way? That's not what I mean by that word. But the conversation, at least at a cultural, colloquial level, has already sort of settled the term, give or take. Deconstruction is analyzing a concept in order to expose its hidden internal assumptions and contradictions and subvert its apparent significance or unity so that one can reduce that thing to its constituent parts in order to reinterpret it or specifically in our circles, an umbrella term to describe a process in which someone who was once a Christian embarks on a quest to jettison their Christianity. So, how should we talk about it? What do people even mean by good deconstruction? And this is where I would argue that it's most helpful to simply use different terms. If what you mean by good deconstruction is evolving, adapting, and maturing in your theological positions and liturgical practice, and as a Christian, I would argue that in church history, we just call that spiritual formation. Everyone who sets out to follow Jesus has to do that. Everyone, you learn stuff, you unlearn stuff. You grow, you wrestle, you doubt what you believe and who you are both transform over time. Sometimes that transformation is subtle and sometimes it seems very drastic. You trade one theological system for another, still a Christian, or you trade one church for another, or you give up a dogmatic position or you learn to accept the ambiguity of a certain text, whatever. Anyone who follows Jesus has to do those things they are inevitable, and we don't call them deconstruction, at least not across the timeline of church history, because we aren't taking things down to expose their inherent contradictions and or illegitimacy. We are remodeling the same old house of our faith. We don't leave. We don't burn it down. We don't get a new house altogether. But that is a frustratingly complex conversation. And more often, we prefer caricatures. As, as someone who has now spent you know, a decent amount of time talking to a decent amount of people about deconstruction, I've confirmed what you might have guessed, this whole conversation gets people pretty upset. Uh, when people are upset, they lean into extremes, and either pole of the extreme has readily accessible spokespeople on which you can draw either inspiration or you know, become a detractor of caricatures. Some people in my position might use, you know, I don't know, certain hyperbolic online personalities, almost like cartoon character caricatures of any and all people navigating the often painful deconstructing of what they once believed. And they might create this kind of uh, idea of the deconstructionist as illogical or entitled or uninformed or selfish or whatever, which is rarely helpful because despite podcast revenues and social media followings, that kind of deconstruction mentality doesn't necessarily resonate with many, if not most of the people with whom I've shared conversations and disagreement. So take me, for example. I wrote a book with a not-so-subtle title about deconstruction, and I have been subsequently depicted as sort of an unthinking religious fundamentalist with a zero-tolerance policy for honest wrestling and legitimate doubt. 
But despite that twist, uh, it turns out to be a book all about my honest wrestling and doubt. Whoa, no one saw it coming. And once again, in my personal experience, I know and have known many, many people to battle their way up and out of broken church upbringings and environments without abandoning their faith and who by no means maintain any militant us versus them disposition toward those deconstructing or to deconstruction itself. Not everyone who deconstructs or even deconverts fits you know, the kind of snowflake progressive stereotype and not everyone who isn't friendly with or doesn't always speak gently to the pop culture deconstruction dialogue is a conservative fundamentalist. Of course, it would be much easier if they were, but they aren't. So our role as responsible disciples of Jesus submitted to the process of spiritual formation is to navigate conversations about doubt and deconstruction with empathy and reason while holding fast to unapologetic faithfulness and avoiding the oversimplification of caricatures, even when they're easier or even when they make us more comfortable or make us feel validated. But, and don't miss this part, even if you do, embrace nuance and complexity. It doesn't mean that everyone else will. Here's another weird thing that happens when you start talking about deconstruction a lot. I sincerely set out to demonstrate, you know, compassion and honor and nuance when I made this thing. And as someone, as someone who has wrestled through a painful period of my own deconstruction, of course, you could argue that I failed, but I tried. Either way, for many, you know, the, the people that read this thing, it becomes like a, a weird Rorschach test. At some point, uh, my spiritual director told me to stop reading book reviews, but before I did, whoa. <laughs> I noticed that the, uh, the praise, you know, some people are very nice and the praise would go something like this. Oh my gosh, it's so balanced and compassionate. I go, oh shoo, man, I, thank God, that's what I was trying to do. But then the disdain often went one of two ways. One is, man, this guy's just another bleeding heart progressive. And then right next to it, oh man, this guy's just another conservative right-wing evangelical fundamentalist. How on earth do multiple people reading the same thing find all three very different extremes in there? I have found that even when you try to demonstrate balance and even when there are, when, when there are some who see that balance, ours is a world unfriendly to nuance, especially in this climate and this kind of social season. Uh, ours is a world where many, if not what often seem like most people, prefer absolutes. To not coddle every deconstructing whim is, for some, tantamount to conservative fundamentalism. To dignify honest questions and doubts is, for others, soft accommodating progressivism. And it can mire the complicated, often ambiguous details of one experience with deconstruction in stereotypes, extremes, which stunts conversation, if not killing it altogether. And that isn't helpful for obvious reasons, not least among which is that the events and actions and circumstances that often lead one to deconstruct in the first place are almost always more complex than stereotypes can accommodate. So what does cause deconstruction? Now, obviously, we can't unpack 
any and every reason. But generally speaking, there are a number of hurdles on the road of discipleship that tend to color the vast majority of conversations that I've had with people over the years about why they feel they can't keep up with the whole Christian thing anymore. And there, there are legitimate hurdles that color the majority of many deconstruction stories I know, including my own. I call them the great predators. The first is uh, biblical illiteracy. The Bible, as you know, you uh, people of Bridgetown Church, you know very well, is an ancient library of writings drafted by dozens of authors across multiple continents and several languages across several centuries. It is the most complex, sophisticated feat of literary artistry in history, and it's also more than that. And yet, it is more often understood by its enthusiasts and its detractors as an entirely literal, linear, moral manual for life in the modern world, ultimately leaving the reader frustrated and lost or even embittered and despairing. The second great predator is the problem of evil. This is a huge one. If God's so good and so powerful, even powerful enough to do anything, then why, oh why, is there so much evil and justice and suffering in the world? In my experience, personally, many deconstructing or deconstructed Christians were only ever given an answer to the problem of evil that implicates God in evil. And of course, who can blame them when they find that their trust in a being who engineers their suffering begins to erode over time and ultimately vanishes? The third great predator is politicized Christianity. Consult any depressing survey of why Christians are fleeing the church and Christianity itself, at least in the, uh, the American church over the last few decades, and you'll find listed somewhere near the tippy top of that list, Christians are too political, belligerent in their politics. We are told stuff about love and mercy and justice, but we see ugly, mean-spirited tribalism and idolatry and say, no, thank you. Thus, the fourth great predator is hypocrisy itself. And it's not just the embarrassing landmarks of church history things evil things like the Crusades and colonists and Jim Crow and the prosperity gospel. It's, it often seems as if those most ardent about Christian morality are the least likely to uphold it. And it's not just the sex scandals and embezzlement of televangelists. It's the indulgent Instagram lifestyles of influential pastors and the casual racism of a church-going family member or the generally unkind face of American cultural evangelicalism. And then finally, add to all that, the final lumbering predator is self-denial. If you learn to read the Bible, and if you get past the politicians and hypocrites, and if you survive the great tragedy of your life with your faith intact, you will yet find that all of this comes down to Jesus, whose invitation prerequisite to apprenticeship was deny yourself, come and die. Modern Western individualists simply cannot abide so outrageous a demand. In our world of deified, you know, hashtag do what makes you happy, the audacity of Jesus' claim and call to self-denial isn't just bold, it's as bad as backward or bigoted or dangerous. That Jesus could ask someone to deny sincere, authentic desire in order to follow him faithfully as Lord, that did not sell then and it does not sell now. What sells is you do you. What sells is you being able to live and express yourself exactly as you see, see fit to feel authentic is the highest order of freedom and goodness. So with one foot in that cultural narrative and another trembling foot in Jesus' call to self-denial, the undertow eventually sweeps many out to sea.
Those are, generally speaking, not, exhaustive, uh, not an exhaustive list, but some of the big, broad strokes, legitimate faith issues that contribute to deconstruction. But obviously, that's not the end of the story. You and I are navigating a unique cultural landscape of deified self-gratification and a certain vocal pushback against any and all things institutional. So in my conversations about deconstruction, I have made it my business to argue for something that the Christian movement calls orthodoxy, which is a word that means right belief, the kinds of things summarized in the early creeds, those non-negotiable foundational tenets of Christianity precious to disciples of Jesus all over the world for hundreds of years. And yes, I do believe that orthodoxy is a wide countryside. It includes many traditions and theological perspectives of the historic apostolic faith. But without some comprehensible parameters around what is and isn't true and why we believe what we believe, Christianity almost immediately departs from the faith of the apostles, the early church, the church mothers and fathers, and the movement of Jesus across centuries and cultures in the world becoming hopelessly ambiguous, forever subject to the interpretation of the individual. Christianity has to be something and not something else, or it is meaningless. And the determination of that something cannot be beholden to the sensibility of the individual. And anyway, all of us, all of us inevitably embrace the idea of ultimate objective truth already. We all believe this is right, this is wrong. I, I was in a, a Walgreens pharmacy, pharmacy the other afternoon and I passed a, a Love is Love t-shirt at the checkout next to the bargain bin of $1 DVDs. And I thought of, you know, the, the cultural appeal to love as ubiquitous. But if love is, for example, these are things I think about while I'm in line at Walgreens. If, if love is ultimate, what is love? What isn't love? For some people, self-proclaiming Christian people, warning sinners of hell with caustic fire and brimstone rhetoric is loving. For others, that's hateful. It's the opposite of loving. So without right belief about love, who can say which is which? If we appeal to love, on whose authority do we invoke its supremacy? Personal sensibility or experience or culture? The Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus of the conservatives, the Jesus of the liberals. Love must be something and not another thing. And to make any meaningful truth claim one way or another, one must appeal to some authority. Love is this, not this. Who says? As Christians, we stand with hundreds of years of church history in answering the question with, Jesus says, within the delegated authority of the scriptures. But everyone has orthodoxy already. It's not actually a uniquely Christian concept. We all believe certain stories about the world and the people in it and that it would be better if other people agreed with our perspective, that if people just believed what we believe, the world would be a better place. All people think like this. This baseline belief informs the way we think and talk and live, the way we might vote or shop or what we post online or write on a protest sign. Everyone already has orthodoxy. So does believing one thing is true and another isn't necessarily make one a closed-minded fundamentalist or a bigot. I'm the pastor of a church uh, overwhelmingly made up of people younger than me. Probably some of them believe, not these guys, they're the ones who showed up. One of them has a tie. So <laughs> probably some people in my church believe something heretical, 
not these people. But <laughs> someone does at some point. That's just part of the process of spiritual formation, meaning we believe something outside of orthodoxy or what the Christian, historic Christian movement has held to be true for hundreds of years. Some people believe these things consciously. Others just haven't heard any difference. Part of our journey, faith journey, learning, growing, all that. Now, of course, I don't reject or banish or scold people for believing something that isn't within the realm of orthodoxy. There have been people participating in my church for years now who aren't even sure that they believe in God at all. And they're welcome to be there just like they're welcome to be here. We love them just as we love one another in the Bridgetown community as well. But I do believe in God. I do hold to orthodoxy. And this makes what I believe and what they believe different. And both beliefs can't be true. I believe in faith one thing is true and another isn't on the authority of Jesus and the scriptures. And I will never bully or coerce anyone. I will welcome and invite other people into the accountability of truth with all the messy imperfections of the human experience within the church where we share orthodoxy as the standard of shared truth. But if one thing is true and another isn't, whether it's love or Jesus or something else, there has to be a standard of orthodoxy or right belief, what we call the way. And to live into and according to something that isn't true has to have consequences. The New Testament calls those consequences death. God's word, not mine, though I do like using it all the time. <laughs> and you and I live in a strange time and place during which everyone believes in ultimate objective truth because we can't practically carry out life any other way. But many of these same people are hostile to the idea that one thing can be true and another thing isn't. The church, for a certain specific demographic, represents that profanely arrogant claim to exclusive truth. We have the one right worldview. And this, many say, is simply a bridge too far. And so they say they just can't do it. And that's something I've often heard from some in the throes of deconstruction, including myself. Um, this is the way I talked as well. The language of helplessness we talk about deconstruction as if it is a coercive force against which we are hopeless to resist. The rhetoric goes, I just couldn't do it anymore, or I wanted to believe, but I couldn't. And within that space, we welcome sympathy. You know, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, and we often reject accountability. What is your role in what you choose to believe and how you live as a result? Now, to be sure, we don't always have unilateral control over our doubts. We can't change our emotions directly, but we can make conscious decisions that influence the degree to which we doubt. And we can make thoughtful choices that influence our emotional state, and we can order our lives in such a way as to cultivate more faith. Now, I am not afraid of other worldviews. I'm not so hopelessly arrogant that I'm convinced that I have nothing to learn from people with whom I disagree, but I would rather dedicate myself to building up what I believe to be true on faith rather than aimlessly wandering the valleys of doubt looking for some new plot hole, some new disbelief in which to mire myself. And to assume faithfulness or faithlessness are mere mental, emotional dispositions that we simply do or do not have based on the hand that we are dealt by life, completely misunderstands what the Bible means by faith and belief in the first place. Human beings are complicated. I don't know if you've had any experience with this. Intellectual belief or like mental assent no more equals genuine faith 
than temptation alone equals sin. You can be tempted and not sin, and you can have intellectual belief and no real faith. And unfortunately for those with one and not the other, actual lived faith, meaning willful, disciplined lifestyle, regardless of doubt and disposition, which are both inevitable, is the only substantive expression of discipleship to Jesus. In the scriptures, the idea of belief is never a static intellectual position, as in, I believe in my mind that God or ghosts or Santa Claus exist. In the story of God, belief happens in and is carried out by the mind, the body, and the soul. It is faith realized by practice and by life itself. In the Bible, there is no belief that happens in the mind but is not also evidenced by lifestyle. There's this, this is really difficult for us to understand because in our culture and in our tradition, the concept of faith has kind of been reduced to a colloquialism for intellectual belief without incontrovertible truth or proof, I mean. That is, oh, I can't prove it, but I just choose to believe in my mind that it's true. But the New Testament term faith always braids together intellectual belief with a way of living entirely consistent with what we think is true in our heads, even though our heads and hearts are volatile places, prone to wander, prone to doubt. Believing in your mind that Jesus is who he says he is, believing in your mind in the God of the scriptures that God exists at all, is of no real consequence in and of itself. It evidences no authentic allegiance or relationship or faith whatsoever. In fact, in the New Testament, James, he has this hilariously snarky way of putting it. He says something like, oh, you believe in God? Great, so do demons, big deal, who cares? You know, and please, that's the way I read it anyway. <laughs> and please, you know, hear me as someone who has himself walked through years of painful doubt and despair and who continues to honestly wrestle daily with the scriptures and with belief itself, I am in no way saying, oh, faith is hard, suck it up and just believe. I, I know that that doesn't work. I have learned across the last four decades with various degrees of success and failure that all that doubt and despair, all those questions and wrestling and the cognitive dissonance, it is not necessarily an enemy of faith nor evidence of spiritual ineptitude. It just means you're a Christian. Like all the other Christians before you, even the very best ones, if anyone sets out to order their life to some extent around some lifestyle decision, they have to choose things. The fitness enthusiast will on certain days not feel much like working out and they learn what it means to just do it anyway. Trust me, my uh, whole family has been vegan for a decade now and even though we all genuinely enjoy all the good food we get to eat, sometimes I just want a dang Twix, man. How come no one's making a good vegan Twix? Someone out here and you guys' network of well-resourced people get to work on that. <laughs> and we make decisions and we persist in what we choose to believe when that persistence is wonderfully downstream and comes with what seems like no effort at all and when it feels as if we are leaning against a hurricane just to take a single step forward. But there are many who simply decide against the next step. So how do we walk with someone, including ourselves, through doubt and deconstruction. Now to end, there are two things those of us observing deconstruction and grappling with our own doubts must balance in tension. The first is this, people will leave the faith. Jesus talked about it at length in his parable of the sower, you know, a man 
plants four sets of seeds. This first set is eaten by birds. The second set gets burned up by the sun. The third's choked out by weeds. And then the fourth set, against all odds, finally grows. And this is Jesus, you know, like parable about the kingdom of God. God's triumphant renewal of all things, the inbreaking kingdom of a new humanity, a broken world restored. How to best capture the power and majesty of such a concept in metaphor. Bronze chariots or a stampede of buff warriors, that's what I would have went with, or a tidal wave, a hurricane. No, apparently a farmer planting seeds, most of which don't grow. It's not exactly a rousing sales pitch at all. Jesus' representation of the kingdom of God as tiny seeds, most of which don't grow, was intentional and sobering, and it's as off-putting now as it must have been then. And that is why uh, Bible scholar Frederick Dale Bruner argues, and I quote, the great majority of the human race will always, if even subtly, reject Jesus. Now this... I realize sounds like a strange presupposition on which to build the movement that will change the world. <laughs> a minority of success amongst the majority of failure. Authentic discipleship to Jesus, accurately understood, is a small movement with the world against it. And this is good or bad, depending on how you look at it. Uh, author Mark Sayer says it well. He says, and I quote, one person's beleaguered minority is another person's dedicated, committed core. It's all a matter of perspective. And so we stay the course. And that's the second dimension to this tension. We are staying the course. Many of us are staying the course. And not just here, all over the world, all races, ethnicities, nationalities, cultures, genders, ages, shapes, sizes, the kingdom of God, as promised, continues to grow. And maybe it feels to you as if the Christian machine is breaking down. But we have to consistently remind ourselves and one another that this movement is much bigger than a tiny demographic in one place at one time. Uh, in his excellent book, After Doubt, uh, A.J. Sopoto, who's down the road somewhere, recognizes the irony of the fact that statistically, the quintessential deconstructionist inevitably falls victim to the very thing they most violently critique. He writes, if I, a white Christian male, were to take elements of someone else's culture and use them for my own purposes, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible and change them to fit my purposes with no regard for the intent with which, with which they were written, they call me enlightened and evolved. How can this be? He goes on to say, for every millennial affluent white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people with less privilege in the world who are finding in the Bible the greatest message one could ever imagine. Now, that sounds really inspiring to a lot of this, but it's not actually inspire, in just inspirational fluff. There are numbers to back this up. In reports published as recently as 2022, Dr. Gina Zerlo, who's a historian and sociologist and a demographer, she demonstrated that her research indicates that 67% of the world's Christians live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania, the largest share of them in Africa. The majority of them are women, and the median age of Christians in Sub-Saharan Africa is just 19. Now, here's why that matters for us. Maybe sometimes... From where you sit, it feels as if the historic Christian movement is being stripped for parts by jaded American ex-evangelicals with podcasts, but it simply isn't true. Maybe it seems as if Christianity has been run into the ground by American scandal and marred beyond repair by televangelists and politicians, but it hasn't because the average Christian is not represented by American politicians or by some cynical white West Coast post-Christian podcaster dude. The average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria. 
The same Christian movement from 2,000 years ago is thriving all over the world where, though always complicated, always imperfect, it remains undefeated by the cynicism and corruption that you and I take for granted. And the hilarious irony is that a majority white affluent Western demographic has committed to such a vocal critique of a movement founded by and primarily sustained by non-white people who have had and no affluence or privilege to speak of. We belong to something bigger than us, bigger than this room or this group or even this church, something ancient and beautiful, broken and imperfect though it may be. And so we choose to stay the course with all our questions and doubts laid bare before God and one another, and we commit to compassion for other people made in God's image who are wrestling with and through doubt and deconstruction while dedicating ourselves wholly to what we believe to be true. We can accept the way and the truth and the life of Jesus without giving in to a war zone mentality. This is what I like to call grace without compromise. I see no reason to hide or water down what I believe to be true of the scriptures and the way of Jesus, just as I see no reason to weaponize it. I believe that I can hold a theological position that informs my belief and my practice without succumbing to a cultural narrative of black and white fundamentalism. Some days I believe what I believe with effortless fervor, and other days I believe barely at all. On both days, I'm a Christian. And sure, I have got a very long way to go, but as far as I can tell, the church is the only place that can make room for and honor both our convinced faithfulness and fidelity to the way and our broken, teetering, despairing unbelief. The easiest way to believe is to go believe with other people. Whether it's orthodoxy or heresy, church or deconstruction, belief looks for companionship. Worldview has its own gravitational pull. Belief pulls in and replicates belief. This can be life or it can be cancer. Deconstruction and deconversion make the promise of camaraderie, mostly in the digital world, but without orthodoxy, without a creed, a way, a standard of right belief, these cells, be they digital or physical, ultimately offer little more than tribalism, a frail unity around what we are against. Because if truth is ultimately subject to the individual's evolving sensibilities, there can be no shared standard of good or evil, right or wrong, truth or lies. Only what we are against. We don't like systems. We don't like the church. We don't like God, whatever. But the church is a place where, rightly lived, we can be the broken, dichotomous people we often are, a people who are resolved to follow Jesus with doubt and despair sometimes in tow and who are asking others to help them as they help others walk the road of faithfulness in rebellion against all other roads. I read a lot of uh, surveys and statistics uh, to have conversations like these or to write a book like this one. And, and one thing that stuck with me most amongst all that research was that I read that among those raised in Christians' homes, one survey found that those who remained Christian later in life, one common motif was that as kids, they had six or seven adults in their lives who were Christian and who were honest about their struggles to keep the faith. That was one of the common denominators around people who were raised Christian and stayed Christian. Not six or seven adults who were never hypocrites, not six or seven adults who were never guilty of moral failure, not even six or seven adults who never wavered in their commitment to Jesus. 
Just a group of people who wanted to follow Jesus together and didn't pretend it wasn't hard. In other words, church. I don't have all the answers to every unique, complex, and often very valid question about the Bible or about God. There are questions that I'm still asking, things that still bother me, quite honestly. Some I've resolved, at least for now, until he tells me something else. And there, and there are others that, if they remain unanswered forever, I care less and less as time goes on. Because faithfulness isn't about avoiding some skulking phantom of deconstruction that snatches us from the narrow road against our will. It's about going forward together in seasons of spiritual plenty and in seasons of want. Doesn't every apprentice know that as the journey towards mastery moves forward, it gets harder, not easier? Don't they assume each new test comes to them with increasing levels of complexity and that though they're maturing in apprenticeship equips and qualifies them for the task, absolutely, it does not guarantee their victory. Instead, the Kung Fu student goes for the next belt, knowing they might fail. The boxer faces the next ranked contender, knowing they could be knocked out. The plumber sets out to repair the pipe without their teacher's assistance, praying they don't ruin the sink. And the tattoo artist, you know, dabs the flesh with alcohol and takes a deep breath and says, God, I hope I don't screw up this guy's shoulder or whatever. The young woman sits down at the harp again and again through all the wrong notes and broken calluses and just keeps playing. And a song once clumsy becomes more beautiful with each performance. If you want to learn to play the harp, you've got to stick with it. 